Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Alessa Pindak, the Chief Content Officer here at MindBodyGreen. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Jill Blakeway to the MindBodyGreen podcast. She's a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine and a licensed and board-certified acupuncturist who's been practicing for over 20 years. In the early part of her career in energetic healing, she focused on the physiological effects of acupuncture, including its benefits for fertility. After founding the Yanova Center, an integrative care practice rooted in Chinese medicine, in 1999, she became interested in the mystery of acupuncture after she saw women finally getting pregnant and others recovering from illness. On a mission to uncover more about energetic healing, she set out on a journey around the world to look at the science and mystery of energy work and chronicles her discoveries in her new book, The Science and Mystery of Healing. The research around energy work is still very much emerging and the science isn't quite there yet. But some of the findings Dr. Blakeway presents in this podcast are fascinating and worth exploring. Jill, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. So you work with a lot of people who are looking to improve their fertility, and you're quite renowned for that, in fact. Um, and in, many people know you as an acupuncturist and an herbalist and for your books about fertility and baby making. But your new book takes a bit of a turn. It's um, very related to all of the work that you've done and how you've helped so many people over the years, but it's a bit different. It's about energy medicine and what you call the science and mystery of healing. So let's start with that. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. My first book was called Making Babies, and um, it was about how to get pregnant. And I wrote that with a Western doctor, with a reproductive endocrinologist. And I spent a lot of my career really looking at the the uh, physiological effects of acupuncture and the science behind it. And I became, as, as time went on, more and more connected to the mystery of it. I saw people getting better in my practice. People seemed to thrive under our care at the Innova Center. And I realized there was more to it than just the physiology and I wanted to explore that and then HarperCollins gave me the most wonderful commission I am so grateful to them and they sent me off as you know on a journey all over the world to look at the science behind energy healing and the mystery so I got to talk to healers and I got to talk to scientists and I got to look at the measurable physiological effects of energy healing in its broadest sense and I had an enormous amount of fun which I hope gets communicated in the book um, <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> <laughs> because really, this was so fun. I couldn't wait to share it with people. I, I learned things that to me were extraordinary. And I wanted people to know about them. So tell us when the first time was that you realized that acupuncture was more than needles, when you started to understand what ener what energy healing might be and that there was more there. Well, acupuncture is energy medicine. And as I said, I think we've become a little ashamed of that. We've been so busy explaining the physiological effects, we've forgotten that it is an electromagnetic intervention. And in the book, as you know, I go into the electromagnetic effects of acupuncture and how the acupuncture points are particularly 
electroconductive um, because of em- embryology. They, they are, they're electroconductive because they're useful when we're embryos um, to create ourselves. And then the acupuncture signal goes through the fascia, which is um, a form of connective tissue that has a lot of collagen in and is particularly electroconductive. So um, I, I was connected to that part of acupuncture. But for me, the little bit of mystery <laughs> really started to happen. And I tell this story in the book that I had a patient who had been a patient for back pain. I was a very green acupuncturist. This is a long time ago. I've done this a long time, um, probably over 20 years ago. And I, I didn't have a great deal of experience. And he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And he said to me, I think you can help me. And I had less faith in myself than he did. And I've never been one to suggest to people that they just go it alone with alternative medicine. I'm a firm believer in integrative collaborations. But we talked to his doctor, and prostate cancer is kind of slow growing. So they said, take three months. And I worked very hard. I adored this man. And I still know him to this day. And um, we collaborated. And it was the first time I saw that a a therapeutic collaboration is really important empowering. Um, And I started to do acupuncture with more energy. And it's just started to come through me. And I've since learned that 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 it responds to need. But it felt like tonic water fizzing down my spine, and he could feel it and I could feel it. And I wondered what that was. And that was the beginning of this quest in some ways. At the end of three months, his prostate cancer had gone. And this is a long time ago, and I still know him. He's an elderly man now, and it never came back. And I don't think I healed him. I think he healed himself in response to a variety of lifestyle changes and prompts. And one of those prompts was energetic. And that was the beginning of me wondering how people heal themselves in response to prompts. Everything from an acupuncture needle to hands-on healing to the placebo. And this book is the end result of that quest, I think. So where did you begin? Well, I carried on in my clinic, trying to work out what was going on. And in the book, I describe a moment. I employed a woman who was a very well-trained naturopath. And they're very science-based, actually, naturopaths. But the head of her naturopathic school had suggested I employ her. And he said to me, she is the brightest person who's ever been through our school. And as an aside, I once saw her thrown across the room by an evil spirit. And I was like, I must meet this woman. (laughs) I must meet her. And it turned out that she was Peruvian and that she came from a long line of healers from the jungle, from the Amazon. Uh, Her granny is still in Iquitos prescribing herbs. Uh, So she had this shamanic lineage. And she was the first person to say to me, you don't need the needles, you know, you can do this without the needles. And I was horrified because who am I if I don't have the needles kind of thing Um, but I realized uh, and and I described this journey in the book I realized I could affect people's energy fields with my hands um, Mm -hmm. but I could also do it with the needles and I didn't have to give the needles up in fact I could do a bit of both which is what we do now at the Unova Center we practice a very energetic form of acupuncture that's still rooted in science and we collaborate with people's doctors and I think we have the balance right I hope we have the balance right between, um, you know, science and the art of healing. 
Let's go back for a moment and talk about your childhood and the experiences that you had growing up and how you think that those affected you and made you a bit more receptive to this, to being this type of tea healer. Well, yes, I, I once met the woman who trains many of the mediums out on Long Island. And I don't know whether you've ever wondered why there are so many mediums out on Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> the Long Island medium, John Edward, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've often been trained by a woman called Pat Longo, mm-hmm. who is um, a, a, a wonderful psychic medium herself. And she told me that often people who've had childhood trauma make very good psychics because they are very good at picking up information from what I would call the energy field and I think that was because they had to as children yes and as I described in the book I had something of a frightening childhood my mother wasn't well she was mentally ill and so I walked on eggshells as Mm -hmm. a child and I never knew any different but it made me um, well in the book I say I nurtured a sense of premonition Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people who've had frightening childhoods understand that Mm -hmm. that you're searching your mother's face in my case for the tight in her jaw for a change in her mood um, in order to stay safe mm-hmm. and I think that that is um, just picking up on a lot of verbal and nonverbal clues but at some point you start to just pick up energy in in the field mm-hmm. and and we all do that to a certain extent if you walk into a room where someone's had an argument you can feel it mm-hmm. you, it may not be still going on but you feel information from the field so I think that often people who've suffered some kind of childhood trauma if they survive it with their psyche intact mm-hmm. become good healers uh, or good psychics I'm not particularly psychic I'm a healer but um, I, I think I pick up information in a variety of different ways. Sometimes I ask questions like everybody else. <laughs> and so, But I notice a lot about my patients. I, I watch them closely, not in a judgmental way, but I pick up information from them in all sorts of ways. And I think it helps me diagnostically. And this energy that you pick up on exists everywhere. We're all emitting energy at all times. We are. And that was one of the fun journeys of the book. At one point, I decided to submit my body to science. (laughs) And I had an EEG of my brain, which Mm -hmm. is a way of, uh, you know, picking up the energy field of the brain and assessing it. And an EKG of my heart, which is a measurement of the energy field of the heart. And I often tell people this because people ask me all the time, can the human energy field be measured? Well, of course it can. We do in, in, in modern medicine the right. whole time. We just measure aspects of it. And we don't necessarily measure the relationship between different aspects of it because it's less interesting for conventional medicine. However, I had both at the same time when I was Mm -hmm. working. And what I found was that my heart and my brain go into resonance. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm unusual. I think this is probably true of a lot of um, healers and acupuncturists and massage therapists and people who do body work. But my heart and brain go into resonance. And to do that, I have to slow my brain down quite a lot. And I clearly taught myself to do that just over the years, Mm -hmm. trying to help my patients. And then interestingly, the patient's heart goes into resonance with mine, which means we're all going at the same frequency. And I think that's where the magic happens. I think that when we all resonate at the same frequency, it's called a resonant bond Mm -hmm. in science. We make a resonant bond and information gets passed one person to the other. And I think in my case, when I 
achieve that internal resonance that is measurable, I become a bit of a channel. It's not particularly clever. I'm not giving the patient <laughs> anything. I'm actually emptying myself out and they're taking information from me. Uh, so I'm not particularly special or clever at all, really. I'm just becoming a conduit. I'm sort of uh, going into alignment. It feels really good to me. Mm-hmm. It feels really good to the patient. There's a There's a sense of safety in that resonant bond. And I was blown away that it can be measured. What do you think? So these bonds can be measured. There's actually machines that are measuring our energy. Yeah. What are the latest research and studies that are being done um, within the field of energy medicine? I know that this was a big part of the exploration of the book. What kinds of things did you find? Who were you talking to? What are the researchers that um, that are studying this? Well, I talked to a lot of people. Um, picking up on that resonant bond, there was a study at the University of Connecticut where they put two people in separate MRIs, in separate rooms, and when one thought healing thoughts about the other, the other picked it up in their brainwaves and they could show it in the MRIs, which sounds really mystical. But that is actually that feeling that we all have when we think about someone and they text us. Mm -hmm. That happens the whole time. (laughs) Or in my case, because I'm a practitioner, I think about a patient I haven't seen literally for 10 years and you can almost guarantee they're on my schedule. It's sort of extraordinary. And I think we got a glimpse of what's happening uh, in those MRI studies. There are also studies that show that an interviewer sitting in front of an interviewee, a bit like we're doing now, (laughs) um, can start to pick up the heart waves of the interviewee in their brain, which is so interesting. (laughs) And they start to show it. So we are, as I say in the book, in silent collaboration Mm -hmm. with each other. And I started to wonder, what does that mean? What, you know, what is the effect of that on the world? And I think the clue is in some research in the Department of Engineering at Princeton. Now, the Department of Engineering at Princeton is like the least woo department <laughs> imaginable. But they, many years ago in the 1970s, they had a female grad student who wondered if she could make a machine that could be changed by the human mind. And the head, the dean of engineering at the time was a man called Dr. Robert Jean, who has since passed, but who I did meet when I was doing this book. He was a very old man by then, but mm-hmm. I did meet him. And uh, he didn't think for a moment she'd pull this off, to be honest, but he <laughs> thought it would be an interesting grad student project that she would go through interesting cognitive decisions, trying to create a machine that could be changed by the human mind. But she did pull it off. Mm -hmm. And she created a machine, it's called a random event generator. And what it does is thanks to decaying atomic material, it just spits out random numbers. And what they found is that when we focus on it with feeling, the numbers become less random. And when more than one person focuses on it, they really become less random. And to give you an illustration of that, on September the 11th, they had machines all over the world spitting out these random numbers and sending them back to Princeton. And four hours before the planes hit the Twin Towers, they started to come into line and become less random. And they stayed that way the whole day as we all focused, which I think is fascinating. Now, I asked the obvious question, which is why four <laughs> hours before? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, they, uh, the researchers said they thought it was a collective premonition. And other people, um, when I've talked about this to audiences, um, which I have all over the place because mm-hmm. I'm on book tour, have suggested that the attack was already underway 
in some ways that the people who were going to do this were already on the planes or queuing up for planes and things like that uh, and that people were picking up that all over the world which is an extraordinary thought um, but that when we focus with great um, intention or compassion in this case I think uh, the numbers become less random and that has ramifications we are changing the world with our intention and with our feelings if we can change a machine we're you know we're changing our reality in some ways which has huge implications I think so then if that is the reality of the world that we're living in, what are the things that we should be doing in order to change our world for good? Well, it's a good question. Um, because one of the things they've done is they've created little portable REGs and they've taken them places. They've taken them to churches and yoga retreats and meditation retreats. They also took them to the Trump inaugural, all sorts of places. And what they found was that when we connect through compassion and love, that has the strongest effect. But um, connecting through fear also has an effect. Hmm. And I think what we're seeing in our world now is we're seeing people become increasingly fearful. We live in a very clickbaity world where fear um, uh, attracts people's attentions. And so people sell fear in, in some ways. And fear energetically contracts. It just mm -hmm. does. You know, if you're fearful, you contract and you contract your world. Uh, and love expands. Love's a very expansive energy. It makes you want to go out and do things and connect to people. And so so I think we have to be careful. We live in a world that's fearful. That fear is affecting reality. We know it changes these random event generators. So we know it starts to create its own momentum. It spreads like a virus, in fact, energetically from person to person. So it's simple in some ways, although uh, like a lot of simple things, not necessarily easy. We have to pick love. Um, and when, you know, we have to ask ourselves when we make a decision, what would love do? Uh, because as we pick love, we go back into alignment and the world opens up. And it's getting harder and harder to do in a world that's increasingly fractious and cruel and in pain. Um, but that was what I got from this journey to do this book. That And it changed my life, actually. It completely changed my life writing this book because I realized that we're energetically affecting each other and we're energetically changing reality and um, we're doing it with our emotions and our thoughts and we have to be careful what we think and what we feel. The idea of choosing love is lovely. <laughs> I think we probably all want to say, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to choose and every time there's a decision, I'm going to be on the side of love. How does that work in practice? How do you overcome fear? How do you make that leap to choose love? I think it's a continuous practice. It's not that you choose love and then you jog along nicely. <laughs> and also, it's not a kumbaya, um, lovey-dovey kind of love. Uh, love sometimes looks like firing someone. You know, love love takes hard decisions. Um, but you can tell when something's in alignment and when it's not. And I got a lovely letter from an acupuncturist this morning. Actually, I spoke at a conference in Vancouver last month about this very topic. And she said that she had um, been having trouble in her practice. She had a receptionist that was um, uh, kind of bitchy and mean. And she had an acupuncturist working for her who complained the whole time. And 
During my talk, I gave the keynote at the Integrative Fertility Symposium in Vancouver. One of the things I said is the clinic must be safe. You have to create a loving, safe space in your clinic because people heal when they feel safe. Think back to that resonant bond I create with my patients. Mm -hmm. And she said that she had been worrying and stressing about this, but she didn't think she could do anything about it because she thought she needed these people. And having heard my talk, she went home and talked to both of them. They both decided to leave. And quite amicably, the acupuncturist is working out two months and then going to set up her own practice, which is why she was complaining. Mm -hmm. And she said, miraculously, I live in an area of the country where there are no acupuncturists and a wonderful acupuncturist contacted me and wanted (laughs) to work with me. And I found a new receptionist. And that is someone realizing that she's out of alignment, choosing love, which didn't look easy. It looked like talking to people about, look, you don't really want to be here. Mm -hmm. And I think it may be time for you not to be. And then trusting that that expansive energy would bring other people uh, who resonate similarly into her field. And that's exactly what happened. It was like a perfect example, really. Let's go back a minute to the research and to the way that people are understanding energy healing now in a way that they may not have before. Can you talk a little bit about how you think that Western doctors, hospitals are embracing energy healing, are open to it in a way that they might not have been five years ago, 10 years ago? Well, I find doctors very open, actually. I I founded an acupuncture program here in Brooklyn at Lutheran Medical Center many years ago, and I was struck by how open doctors are because they see their patients heal in miraculous ways Mm -hmm. sometimes. Uh, And all doctors have stories of spontaneous remission, a bit like the story I had about the patient with prostate cancer. And all doctors have questions about how that happens, how people heal themselves. And so doctors are very interested in the prompts that prompt people to heal themselves, mm-hmm. uh, I find. They're not... You what- went through some interesting examples in the book about even just ways that doctors can change their language that yes. will result in better yes. outcomes. In in the chapter on placebos, it's clear that doctors who um, focus on their patients with love, <laughs> with care and compassion, get better results. The patients respond, which makes sense, doesn't mm-hmm. it? If you feel safe, you feel safe enough to kind of unravel things that are going wrong in your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think doctors are, are interested in this. I think they're worried about patients having false hope. I am too. Mm-hmm. I agree. They're worried about people being deceived. I, I am too. Uh, and so they're protective, but I think uh, they, they want to explore it. I also did clinical research uh, with doctors into energy healing at one point, and I found them very receptive. And they are using energy in interesting ways. So for instance, at Columbia University, uh, they discovered that if you run a current through bone, it speeds up the healing. And now at all the best orthopedic hospitals, they do run an electric current through broken bones to speed up healing. Interestingly, it's a very low frequency, and it is the same frequency that is emitted from the hands of Qigong masters and Reiki masters. Uh, actually. So um, uh, nobody had made that connection necessarily in Western medicine. They just, you know, plug them into a current. Mm-hmm. But actually, when you you measure Qigong masters, who are the Chinese medicine version of energy healers, mm-hmm. uh, they, when they're in their meditative state, produce energy fields out of their hands that are a thousand times bigger than the energy fields around the heart, which mm-hmm. are usually the biggest energy fields in the body. And that um, energy field is 
transmitting at a very low frequency. So it's the same frequency that's been found to heal bone and soft tissue. And when you tell doctors that, it all starts to make sense, actually. And so I find them very collaborative. I, I collaborate with lots of doctors here in New York, and I enjoy it. They challenge me, they push me a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> and I enjoy them enormously. I think that one of the things that's so interesting about your book also is that you say that this power to heal and this power to harness energy medicine is not just in the hands of healers and experts, but it's really within the realm of everybody to um, to help heal themselves. And that through practice, through understanding what energy is and how to harness it yourself, you can actually have an impact on yourself and on your loved ones. You go through a lot of exercises um, in the book. Can you tell us about one of those? What is something that listeners right now can start doing? Well, you're right. I did put exercises in the book because I wanted people to know that this is our birthright, that there isn't just some special category of people who are healers. We're all healers and we're all healing each other the whole time. You know, when you pick up your baby, when you when uh, he or she is crying and you hold them, it's a form of energy healing in some way. So I wanted to help people do exactly that. And so there are exercises at the end of every chapter that teach you how to use this energy in your whole your your own life. So um, one of the lessons, actually, I get asked a lot, people are fearful, which I really understand. So people always ask me, how do you protect yourself from negative energy? And I think that's a little bit of a fearful way of framing it. So I prefer not to think of it as protecting yourself. Mm -hmm. I think you're perfectly safe. You're perfectly <laughs> safe. I've found myself to be perfectly safe. <laughs> but I do think that you can get a bit sucked dry. And so one of the things that I teach my patients and I teach people in the book, and we can do this now, mm -hmm. is I teach people to ground themselves and flood themselves with their own light which helps you individuate a little bit and it helps with boundaries and that feeling when you you know people talk about energy vampires and things mm -hmm. like that when people hook you and pull you and what you do let's do it together okay is <laughs> we'll put our coffee down um is you just sit here like we are doing and you imagine a big old cord like a huge thick i think of it as nanka chain going down into the earth and people think visualizations aren't doing much, but you are affecting your energy field with a visualization. You're changing the way it's organizing itself. So push that big anchor chain right down into the, to the earth and feel yourself getting a little heavy in your seat, like it's just weighing you down. And if you like, you can just wrap that around the molten core of the earth and then straighten up your spine and imagine opening the top of your head, this is your crown chakra, and pulling your own beautiful spiritual light into your body. It's shiny and sparkly. This is your connection to source energy. This is you, this is who you really are. And just pull that light all the way through your body, right down to the tips of your toes, and then just push it outside of your skin a little bit so that you're surrounded by your own light but it's come from inside you and just imagine about an inch of beautiful beautiful sparkling light that is you that is your spirit and actually this is a lovely place to be it's hard to leave it and you can 
start to feel your own energy. You can bring your hands together and then move them apart about six to 10 inches and start to feel your own field. It feels for some people a little tingly and for others kind of warm. And from this very grounded, connected place, that's how I treat my patients. Can you feel it? I can. <laughs> Isn't that fun? It's really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. Thank you. You don't need to wrap yourself in anything. You just push your own light out. <laughs> that's lovely. So through these kind of exercises, through harnessing your own sense of your own energy, what what can you do with that energy now? Now that you can start to feel it, now that you can start to understand it, what impact does that have? You can start to use it to affect other people and yourself. Just that exercise floods you with wisdom. When I lose my keys, which is a kind of trivial thing, but I lose them literally the whole time, <laughs> I can scurry around my house in a panic. And the more panicked I get, the less likely I am to find my keys. Or I can ground myself, flood myself with my own light and ask myself where my keys are. And I guarantee you, I find them. Wow. I'm kind of led to the place, you know, led to the kitchen. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, there they are. <laughs> and I always say, thank you. Although really, I'm thanking me. It's my uh, higher self. So you can get answers from this place and you can use it to affect other people. Now, I'm not suggesting that you replace Western medicine with this <laughs> or, in fact, that you just declare yourself a healer having done it once. Right. Um, you know, it takes some practice to mm -hmm. get good at this. Um, but you can you can start to use it when your, you know, partner is anxious. Mm -hmm. You can ground yourself, fill yourself with your own light, feel that energy in your hands and then put it you know, next to his or her heart and see what that does. See if they start to resonate with you in a way that is calming and soothing. What is the relationship between anxiety and energy? Well, we're often anxious when we're out of alignment. It's uh, anxiety is a warning sign. It's like the canary in the coal mine in some mm -hmm. ways. There's often something going on that um, we haven't paid attention to or we don't want to pay attention to, I think. Mm, there, people get anxious for all sorts of reasons. Some people are justifiably anxious. <laughs> the country makes me anxious fairly <laughs> regularly. Um, I, I, you know, there's a lot going on in the world and the, there's much to be anxious about. But in my experience treating patients, their anxiety is often about not being in alignment with their life and there's something they need to change. And when they change it, a bit like the acupuncturist I was telling you about who changed her practice having heard me say the clinic should be safe that then everything goes back into alignment and it's almost like a huge relief you, your next path opens up so if you ever feel stuck in your life like you don't know where you're supposed to be and you don't know what's coming next ask yourself what would feel delicious Mm -hmm. What would bring me joy? <laughs> and try and step to that place because I guarantee you, and I've, I've done this with so many patients as well as myself, your future will start to open up again. And it's mystical. Like, wonderful opportunities arrive. Um, it's very beautiful. We are creating some of our reality with our attitudes. And when we get stuck, we contract and our lives contract and we get anxious. And when we unstick ourselves, um, uh, uh, we open up and there are extraordinary possibilities right in front of our nose. Let's talk for a moment about fertility. 
Um, it's something that, of course, has been the basis of a lot of your work. Can we talk about energy healing and fertility and the way that those two play together? And also what the biggest things are that you found get in the way of optimal fertility and in, in working with so many couples and over the years, what are the, what are the blocks that you find come up over and over again? Well, you're right to mention blocks because I think I got my interest in stuckness and freeing up stuckness <laughs> from working with so many women struggling with infertility, so many couples struggling with infertility. I love that aspect of our work at the Innova Center. We have a very strong fertility specialty. We treat everybody from tiny babies to senior citizens. We treat men, which people often don't realize. <laughs> um, but we we have a very um, strong focus on fertility and it's very gratifying to help people troubleshoot some Something that is so painful and I have enormous compassion for my fertility patients who are feel let down by their bodies and it's it's a huge sadness for people so to help those people have babies is extraordinarily fun and it often involves just the uh, the kind of collaboration between science and mystery that I love, of course. I love helping people go through their IVF procedures. I consider IVF to be miraculous. <laughs> I, I, there are many fertility doctors that I adore. I wrote my first book with a fertility doctor. Um, but I, I see the role of acupuncture as being quite physiological. There, there is plenty of proof that acupuncture enhances fertility. There was a study of women going through IVF, uh, 180 women and half had acupuncture with their IVF and half didn't and the half that had acupuncture had a 50% better outcome. So there's no doubt that acupuncture increases fertility, it balances hormones and there's plenty of studies that back that up. Um, it brings blood to the uterus and the ovaries to resource a good uterine lining and a healthy egg um, and uh, it's, it's very useful. But there's also something about the connection that a good acupuncturist makes with their patient that helps them get unstuck. And that's the bit that's very energetic, mm -hmm. I think. And I like helping women uh, and men work through those blocks. Some of them are psychological and some of them are physical. Some of them are pain that we've stored in our bodies. Um, some of them are the effects of things other people have done to us. Sometimes it's just a chemical imbalance that is, has nothing to do with it. And the detective work of that is, is um, the joy of the job, uh, mm -hmm. teasing out all the complicated things that block someone from being able to reach their goal of having a child and help them do that in the most holistic sense possible, mind, body, and spirit, is my job. And I love it. You talked about blocks and the way that there are these blocks that get in the way of optimal fertility. There's probably blocks that get in the way of a lot of um, success that we're trying to achieve in our health and in our life. What are those? What are those blocks? How can energy work help to unstick us? How do you know if you have these blocks? Certainly, if you're trying to achieve an outcome of pregnancy and that's not working, that might be one indication. But there's certainly a lot of a lot of people aren't trying to achieve that who are feeling those kind of um, not feeling optimal. How do you know when you have those blocks? How does energy um, medicine help unblock them? Well, the ancient Chinese call it qi stagnation, stagnation of qi. And they say, and I do believe this, and I've seen this my whole career, that when our qi stagnates somewhere, we become sick. We suffer pain or dysfunction in some way or an organ dysfunction. And so the first sign is pain and dysfunction. And it can be physical pain, or it can be anxiety, or it can be dysfunction in your broader life, actually. And all of those are signs that you are not flowing as mm -hmm. you could. 
And I, I, I more and more just want to help people flow as they could. <laughs> so it, I think what happens is that we have experiences that we can't process for whatever reason, often when we're children and we literally cannot make sense of them. And we put them places in our body and they become what Kieran Trace, who is in chapter two of my book and is a spiritual teacher, calls uh, pain bodies. And they they create a life of their own. They create mm-hmm. a little body of pain that talks to you and tells you that, you know, you'll never amount to anything, you're always going to fail, that kind of thing. So if you have that tape going on in your mind, you're not pretty enough, you're too fat, whatever it is that is just a self-critical, defeating tape, it's probably coming from a painful place in your body where you stored something that hurt that you weren't able to process and that you don't revisit. And often the place that you store it is also the place where you get physically sick. And in the book, I describe that Kieran saw a pain body in my solar plexus, which is the top of your abdomen. And I was a little sniffy about it because I thought, well, how would I not know? (laughs) I'm an energy worker, for goodness sake. Uh, And then I realized that all my problems, health problems that I've ever had have really been in that area. I've had a hiatal hernia, I've had gallbladder Mm. polyps. They're all right there in my upper abdomen. And once I moved that pain body which I'm going to tell you how to do. (laughs) Once I moved that pain body, all those ailments went away, which is interesting, isn't Mm -hmm. it? And it's an interesting example about how the physical and the energetic align. I was creating dense tissue and dysfunction, but it was coming from an emotional root. Mm -hmm. And Kieran taught me that you can't move stuck energy, stagnation with force, which is what we want to do. Mm -hmm. You can only move it with love. And she taught me to find a memory from childhood where I was warm and safe and felt cared for and take that feeling and put it into my solar plexus and let it slowly unravel Hmm. the tightness there. And as I did that, I realized how tight I have always been in, in the upper abdomen there. And I think that most people are very wise. And if you ask them to take a second and tell you where they're tight and stuck, they Mm -hmm. can tell you. I find that in my clinic the whole time. And then if you take love and warmth and gentleness and put it in that area, it slowly lets go. And it's not an instant thing. You need to do this several days in a row. You need to do it as long as it takes. In your center, you hire a lot of energy healers. You interview them. You have to find people. You've been doing this for years. How do you find people that you think have that gift, have that talent? Well, I think we all have that talent, actually. So it's not as difficult as you might think. (laughs) I'm not looking for, I am looking for uniquely special people, but I'm also not in some ways. I recruit uh, practitioners of Chinese medicine. They either have a master's or a doctorate. I like them to be academic and scientifically literate because we deal with a lot of doctors. That is practical. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I look for people with extremely good hearts and compassion who are in alignment with our clinic, who will make Mm -hmm. our clinic a safe space. And I weed out people who are probably a little bit more cynical or um, uh, mean-spirited. I'm looking for good-hearted, smart, nerdy people, really. (laughs) And uh, I find there are a lot of them. And I have 18 acupuncturists who are my colleagues, and everyone is 
a, you know, just a wonderful practitioner. We have an office in Brooklyn uh, on Remsen Street and one in the Flatiron, and we're just about to open one on 58th Street. And then I think the key to running a, a business like ours, which is so people-centered and heart-centered, is that I love them and they love the patients. <laughs> it, it trickles through. Mm-hmm. So I have a team I'm extremely proud of. All of our front desk team, our administrators, the marketing team, everybody is a good-hearted person at Unova. That's what I've I've looked for. And then I support them to do their job to the best of their ability. And that means supporting them with their lives too. I, I employ a lot of Mums, I I like working mums. I was one. My daughter's grown up now, but <laughs> I know the struggle. Um, so you know, I give them time off for PTA meetings, and I support <laughs> them as whole people in their lives. Mm-hmm. And they pass that on and support the patients as whole people in their lives too. And if you're looking for a practitioner in your own life, what are things that you should look for, knowing that yes, everybody has the ability to heal, but certainly there are some people who are probably going to resonate with you and bring you to a better place than others. Healers can be very expensive, and the path that you have to go down in order to get to know someone can be long. So how do you make sure that you're headed down the path with the right person? Well, the acupuncturists are the only licensed and board certified energy healers in the country. And that has some uses because, of course, if you have a license, you have to have a, a met a minimum educational requirement. Uh, in most states, and here in the state of New York, this is true, you have to have a, master, a four-year master's degree or a five-year doctorate in order to be a licensed and board certified acupuncturist. And you're also held to an ethical standard. If you do something unethical, you could lose your license just like a doctor and then you can't practice. So I think that is somewhat protective and helpful. But I often get asked, how do you find a hands-on healer? And that is a much more complicated world because Mm -hmm. there are some amazing healers out there. As you know, I met many of them in my book. I Mm -hmm. went to Japan and met some extraordinary healers. Um, But it's also a bit unregulated. So it's like Mm -hmm. the Wild West. And I became concerned about this as I wrote the book. Um, And I consulted the head of psychiatry and law at Harvard, a very lovely man called Dr. Thomas Goodheil, who's a forensic psychiatrist and is one of America's biggest experts on transgressions of the therapeutic relationship Mm -hmm. and he was very clarifying to me he has given evidence in 300 court cases where a therapist of some kind including western doctors and religious people and someone with power over people and alternative medicine practitioners have transgressed the the therapeutic relationship and he had horror stories Mm. of patients you know people sleeping with their patients and uh, someone getting their patient to clean their office which was kind of mind-blowing to me Uh, and he said to me a good practitioner should only get two things they should be getting their fee which should be appropriate and the satisfaction of having done a good job so if someone's trying to get something else out of you then they may be a bit exploitative. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I found when I looked at charlatans was A, reassuringly, I didn't meet that many. (laughs) But B, we always think of charlatans as people who wave their hands around, they're doing absolutely nothing and charging a fortune. I didn't see many of those, but I did see a category of healer who'd allowed their ego to get in the way and were using their skills to exploit other people. Mm-hmm. either sexually or financially or for social connections mm-hmm. or, you know, publicity, all sorts of things. And, and I thought that was serious enough that it warranted a little section in the book on how to look out for that. Mm-hmm. And 
price, you mentioned price. Price is interesting because if people charge an enormous amount, you're less likely to question whether they're helping you. It's a bit like if, the more you paid for an art forgery, the less likely you are to admit it's a forgery, yeah? And also I saw on the other end that people who charged absolutely nothing uh, also helped you lower your guard. You thought, well, hey, I've got nothing to lose. They're not charging me anything. But they were, uh, in the cases I looked at, they were often uh, exploiting the patient for publicity. And I always say that if you're not paying, you're probably the product in some ways. Uh, and they were building a, a following in order to do other projects. Mm -hmm. So uh, a reasonable fee is the way to go. And then trust yourself and tell yourself the truth. If you're not getting better, tell yourself. Don't Confirmation bias is a bit of a drug. Just because you want it to work doesn't mean it is working. I always tell my patients, tell me honestly. I know you want to please me, <laughs> but I want to help you. So if something's not working, tell me, because then we'll try something else. Let's take a bit of a turn and talk about God and the role of belief and gratitude in healing. What role do these play? It's a complicated question because you don't have to believe in energy healing for it to work. Uh, and I'll give you an example. At City University, there was a man called Dr. William Bankston, who is, um, he's still there. He's a professor at City University. And he learned an odd energy medicine technique from a psychic healer and decided to test it in the lab. And this is one of the most exciting and interesting stories in my book. I devoted an entire <laughs> chapter to this man because it's an extraordinary story. So they took mice that are specially bred to have cancer, which is kind of sad for the mice. And those mice reliably, when they're given cancer, die on day 27. And that's how pharmaceuticals are tested. If they can keep the mice alive for longer than 27 days, they've got some hope of a, a, a useful pharmaceutical. So he um, originally did the research on his own. And they took the mice, gave them mammary cancer, breast cancer, and then he did the technique. And uh, the mice healed themselves. And what's more, when he attempted to give them cancer again, poor old mice, they could not get it. Something had changed in their immune system. And being a true scientist, Dr. Bengston then thought um, he needed to get teach other people to do this because good science should be replicable. You can't just have a special someone somewhere doing something that nobody else can see. <laughs> we all need to learn from science and move forward. So he taught even the most skeptical students to do this technique. He told them they were taking part in research into gullibility, which I'm sure they believed. <laughs> and they did the technique and reliably um, the mice healed. And that was thousands and thousands of mice in the end over there at City University. And what that means is that belief is not part of this. Um, the students didn't believe they were helping. <laughs> they thought they were just taking part in some weird experiment on gullibility. And the mice had no idea that this was supposed to work. And yet they still healed themselves. So this information on a frequency does not uh, rely on belief. And I always tell people my favorite patient is an open skeptic. <laughs> yeah, if you're a closed skeptic, you're just dogmatic, just like, you know, the true believers in energy healing who refuse to see its limitations. But an open skeptic is a is a fun patient for me to treat, which does not mean that there is no God involved in this, which <laughs> is kind of your question. <laughs> you don't have to believe in anything. You don't need any kind of dogma or anything like that. But I believe we heal from a place of oneness. I think that's 
what I, the research was hinting at when my heart and the patient's heart went into resonance. And I believe that we are all in fact one, that there is a source energy that flows through us that is exactly the same source energy. And it gets individuated in our physicality. So you and I are sitting here mm-hmm. and you are you, lovely <laughs> you, and you are your unique individual version of yourself with all your hopes and dreams and your beautiful heart. I am sitting here and I'm me, but what is flowing through us is the same thing. And that place of oneness, I call it source because I found that God was a difficult word for a lot of people because religion becomes so dogmatic, Mm -hmm. but I think it is God. And in the book, I interviewed Neil Donald Walsh, who wrote Conversations with God. Mm -hmm. He was my mentor many years ago, and he gave me a beautiful interview that was all about that, our, our oneness and our individuation. Back to those mice for a second. (laughs) (laughs) I know the mice are so fascinating. What do you make of that? Well, um, Bill creates a a resonant bond with the mice. The technique creates a resonant bond. And he very generously let me write the technique in the book so you can practice it. It's, again, simple but not easy. Uh, And what it is, is it's a technique for distracting your ego. And so you flash lots of uh, pictures of things you want. These aren't your noble ones like world peace and, you know, no poverty and things (laughs) like that. These aren't your higher self ones. These are your like instant gratification and you watch a beach house kind of ones that Mm -hmm. you wish you had. Mine had a beach house, (laughs) um, which I don't have. And, (laughs) And you flash these and it distracts your ego. And what that allows is for you to go into an intuitive space where you can create that bond. Now, I think I, in the clinic, was doing it differently. I was emptying my head, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Bill was teaching his students to fill up their heads with things that were distracting. But it, it ends up in the same place. You get your head and your ego and your smaller self out of the way, and you connect to source energy. And at that point, um, uh, you're able to create a bond, and that, that, that bond is measurable, or we're beginning to be able to measure that bond scientifically. And that is what... Uh, Bill is teaching people to do. He's also, by teaching them to flash once, he's helping them project themselves a little bit into the future and the patient, which is interesting. I don't think time is exactly linear, which gets to, you know, we start to get into mind-blowing territory. Um, but I think that that it, you know, I want the patient to heal. The patient wants to heal. We align with that um, and we start to project into the future. And the mice healed and they could not get the cancer again. And what's more, at Brown University, they used this technique, Bill used this technique, to put the frequency, it's information carried by a frequency is what it is, to put the information into cell medium. And then they put human cancerous tissue, again, breast cancer tissue, from from a tumor into the cell medium. And when I wrote the book, it had made nine genetic changes in the cancerous tissue. And at my book launch, where Bill showed up, Mm -hmm. uh, he told me it had made 67 um, genetic changes in human cancerous tissue. So this is information carried by a frequency that is made possible by creating a resonant bond between one living being and another. And science is being, is on the verge of being able to explain exactly why. That's incredible. And this research is ongoing, it sounds like. Yes. Who knows what, they're, what the number is yes. by Well, now. they think eventually they'll be able to put this frequency into a sound. Hmm. And then we can have an app. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How mind-blowing is that? <laughs> incredible. <laughs> 
I don't want to call it a theme exactly, but something that comes up a lot in the book is death, um, which is, of course, a little bit the opposite of everything we've been talking about here in terms of healing and um, and health and getting better. But um, you had spent time in hospice working with patients, and, um, and it, it comes up from time to time. And I'm curious about what your relationship is with death and what you hoped that the reader would resonate with in terms of that topic in the book. It does come up. And I think if you uh, are any kind of practitioner, you give some thought to death. Um, Not everybody heals. And um, people die. We all die. It's one of the, the sureties in our life is that we will die and we will probably at some point get sick in a way that um, we won't be able to come back from. And I saw that very clearly when I worked in hospice. I saw that it was part of our journey and it's a part of our journey we don't want to look at. We're in denial because it's very anxiety provoking. And it's anxiety provoking because we don't know what happens next. Nobody's really very sure. I, in hospice, began to be very sure that there is something that happens next, though. And I think that's very reassuring. And in the book, I make the case, and I talk to lots of physicists about this, and they're all in the book, that we are simply energy condensed. We are like all other matter, like the table you and I are sitting in front of. We know it's moving. We just can't see it moving. But we know that it's held together energetically. And we are similar. Mm -hmm. And there is a point at which we transmute and we go to a different frequency and we are no longer held together and we we leave our body. And in the book, I describe that when I was in hospice as a young practitioner, I would hold my hand above people's crown chakras and I could feel energy hitting my hand really strongly. And I began to believe that people head out upwards (laughs) and that that was their energy leaving So I think death is very painful for us because we have all lost people we love and we're the people left behind. I suspect for the person who dies, it's actually just a journey into another form that energy doesn't actually ever end. Um, that's the first law of thermodynamics. In fact, it just it, it just changes, it just transforms. Uh, and that's true for our own energy too. And so I talked about my mother's death in this book. She had a near-death experience at a point mm-hmm. where people um, weren't talking about it. It was before the internet. Um, but she had the classic near-death experience. So we looked at that a little bit in the book and what that means and how that works physiologically. But I saw a lot of that in hospice. And actually, it made me want to help people um, not have such a taboo when it comes to death. Mm-hmm. You work with a lot of people who are experiencing a lot of things. How do you take care of yourself? I know that we you, you mentioned earlier that you don't have to protect your own energy, but how do you take care of yourself? How do you come home at the end of the day after working with so many people and dealing not with pushing papers around in numbers, but you know people and their energy? And um, how do you restore yourself? Well, I don't feel I have to protect myself, but I do feel I have to um, fill myself up with me again. Mm -hmm. Um, I, as I described in the book, was not always great at this. I have become better. (laughs) And it's one of the things I think I can help my team with. It's one of the things I got better with 
uh, as I got older. There's some wisdom in having done it 25 years. So in the book, I, I explained that I got extraordinarily depleted at one point. And actually, the person who helped me was Neil Donald Walsh, who m- miraculously came into my life at that point and offered to mentor me. And if you haven't read Conversations with God, you should. It's a beautiful book where Neil had a conversation with God and asked all the things that we would like to ask God. And God answered Neil. And it's a, it's a phenomenal book. And Neil is a very wise man. And he that was helped an incredible me. story how he just kept on writing. He just kept writing. He wrote, he, right. he railed against God one day and um, uh, he heard a voice say, are you just venting or would you like the answers? <laughs> and Neil said, I'd like the answers. And God said, go and get a yellow pad. <laughs> and Neil wrote it all down. Well, okay. And it's an extraordinary book. Yeah. And Neil is a very special man and very dear to my heart. So I um, he helped me understand that I, although we're all connected, we are individuated. We are, uh, uh, you know, I am not you, you are not me. We have the same source energy going mm-hmm. through us. So we have a oneness, um, but we're, we're also our separate selves. And so boundaries help me, uh, I think. And I didn't have that earlier on. I got sucked dry. I I care desperately about other people. Um, I like a lot of people. I, you know, I'm an empath. <laughs> I put myself in their shoes and I think, oh, I want to help this woman or whatever. And um, I used to get very depleted. And I have... Um, got a sense of where I start and where I stop and where other people start. And that has helped me hugely. So I do go home and leave it behind these days. And I'm also pretty stubborn about staying in alignment, which Mm -hmm. I didn't. I would soldier on um, in situations that were causing me pain. And I would soldier on with people who caused me pain. You know, I would have employees that um, were really out of alignment with Yenova and I would not feel able to get rid of them and things like that and these days I I think I drive everybody nuts because I say if it doesn't feel delicious we're not going to do it (laughs) but it's true it's a great guiding philosophy yeah (laughs) if it feels delicious we will take our next step or as Neil Mm -hmm. Donald Walsh would say we will create the next greatest and grandest version of ourselves which is true for me personally and is true for Yanova we're in the process of creating the next greatest and grandest version of ourselves Mm -hmm. we're expanding but we're doing it with love and in alignment and if something doesn't feel right if it if it feels stuck if it feels painful if it provokes anxiety and us all we take the next delicious step instead what keeps you up at night the world um uh, i i felt like those princeton studies with the random event generators were very life-changing when I truly understood them. I don't know whether I truly understand them actually, but when I got a sense that we are affecting each other and the world and our future with our thoughts and our feelings. And I worry that it's too easy for people to choose cruelty. And I worry that cruelty and pain spread like a virus and beget more cruelty and pain. And that uh, instead of taking the next delicious step, people take the next destructive one. And on a global scale, that um, uh, is worrying to me. Uh, Although that is a form of choosing fear. (laughs) Um, But I also believe hugely in the power of the human spirit. And I see every day uh, wonderful people. I rarely meet someone who isn't just extraordinary. And I see people's light. And I believe that that light, that beautiful light that is in all of us, will continue to shine. 
and that the vast majority of people want what everybody wants. They want peace and security. They want to be able to feed their families. They want to be connected to their communities and that they will pursue those wants and that, that love and connection will, in the end, uh, prevail. But I, I lie awake at night and think, oh, there's so much pain in the world. In light of that perspective, how do you raise a child in the world? I know that your daughter's grown now, but um, how do you continue to educate her? How do you hope that this next generation goes into the world? Well, my daughter is grown. She's the marketing director of Unova, funnily enough, <laughs> because she spent so much time there as a working mom. She's a she's a, the best voice for Unova because she's just uh, she embodies our spirit. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll see, or uh, you know, on social media, you'll see that we Emma makes those decisions about mm-hmm. how we talk to the world, and um, she's extremely good at it. Beautiful. Which makes me feel that I possibly did a good job of teaching her how to choose love. And it wasn't always perfect. I think mothers feel like they have to be perfect or something terrible will happen. And the truth is that it gets a little messy. We're juggling our lives. I have great compassion for moms because I was one and dads. And it's a huge responsibility and we're not really trained for it and we do the best we can. And I was like that. It wasn't always perfect, but here we are. <laughs> and But I did teach her to choose love. And I also taught her very young to meditate. She, her name is Emma, so she used to call it emanating. She didn't, and I never corrected her because I thought it was very sweet. Mommy, I'm off to emanate now. Um, and when she was really tiny, I taught her by, um, we had little stones that she would put in a jar one by one and focus on the noise and the, uh, and the, the visual of the stone going in the jar. And I do think that teaching children meditation allows them to have some space between an event and their reaction. And that is one of the best grown-up skills you can have. And the, the, the earlier you learn to do that, the better, because things happen. And if you have a split second of space before you get into your reactive mind, that buys you a lot of decision-making. And so I taught her that pretty young. I also, and I always tell my patients who are moms this, at some point you need to teach your children to self-soothe. You know, that we things happen, we get anxious, and a lot of grown-ups I see do not know how to soothe themselves. So they stay in that fight, fight or flight mode for way longer than they need to. Mm. So being able to restore your equilibrium emotionally is a skill, mm-hmm. and it's a learnt skill. And so I think teaching our children to self-soothe, distract themselves, come back to their center whether they do it through breathing or when Emma was small, we used to look at pictures of baby animals. They're very soothing. (laughs) (laughs) What gets you up in the morning? work I like I like to work I, I wear lots of different hats and I like it that way um, I'm I run Yanova which is now a, a big practice uh, I teach Chinese medicine in a doctoral program and I write books I'm about to start thinking about my next one uh, and I still treat patients and I like the variety it feels like an adventure my life has got better uh, as I have got uh, better at picking Uh, the next aligned step and that's exciting Mm -hmm. that I feel 
these days, I'm in my 50s now, and there's, I can't even begin to tell you how liberating it, it is somehow to get into your <laughs> 50s. You're just like unfettered. You stop caring what everybody thinks about you. You're not paralyzed by whether everybody thinks you're weird anymore, which I used to be. and be like, oh, I have to look not weird. Um, clearly, I'm a bit weird <laughs> and proud of in it. In the best possible way. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and so I've become much more myself, and I'm always excited to see what the next step and so um, finding out what's around the corner is what gets me up in the morning what advice would you give your 20 year old self don't take it all so seriously (laughs) (laughs) it's all a little bit of a dream in some ways you are fundamentally safe you don't have to be perfect Uh, you don't have to be seen to be perfect what other people project onto you is all about them it doesn't matter don't be paralyzed by everybody's projections whether good or bad as as i as my role in the world has expanded people project things onto me sometimes they write me lovely fan letters and sometimes they write me (laughs) letters that are a little scary none of it matters it's all other people's thought forms they're creating they're create they're having thoughts and emotions and they're creating what we call thought forms in energy medicine and you either buy them or you don't (laughs) so stay grounded stay humble (laughs) know that you are not special you're just one with everybody else Uh, and but don't don't be paralyzed by self-doubt either jill thank you so much for being here thank you so much for asking me such interesting questions (laughs) 